0: Welcome back to another episode of the Future Cities Podcast. I'm your host for the month, Stephen Elser. A couple of familiar voices will be joining me today for a conversation about extreme events and resilience in Hermosillo, Mexico, where they just spent two and a half months. We have, what, we have with us Jason Sauer, who is one of the co-hosts of the show. So I think uh, this is actually the first time he's been interviewed for the show. Is that right, Jason?
1: Yeah, probably. We did talk about our research in Valdivia, but never been interviewed. No. Yeah, that's true. We did
0: have that Valdivia episode. Uh, so could you please just give a brief introduction for folks in case they haven't heard you before on your previous episodes?
1: Uh, sure. So my name is Jason Sauer. I am a god, fourth year PhD student or candidate now uh, here at Arizona State University um, in the Environmental Life Sciences Department. Uh, I would probably classify myself mostly as an urban ecologist, uh, but I kind of wear a lot of hats, I guess.
0: All right. Great. Well, welcome, uh, and thank you for being here. And then we have Yulia Zuba, who was featured in a recent episode back in February called Heat and Thermal Comfort, where we talked about heat, perceptions of heat, and what affects those perceptions at bus stops in Phoenix, Arizona. If that's interesting to you, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. Welcome back, Yulia, and could you also give a brief introduction?
2: Sure. So I'm a PhD candidate in sustainability, and uh, I predominantly study heat and uh, how it it affects uh, people and how people perceive heat depending on uh, different types of infrastructure.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, And thank you so much for being here. So as I mentioned before, Jason and Yulia just spent two and a half months in Amarillo, Mexico, doing research. We're going to talk a little bit about the research in a moment. But before, I just wanted to give a very brief background uh, about Amarillo. So Amarillo is located in the northwest Mexico and is the capital and largest city of the state of Sonora. The city population is around 810,000 and the metropolitan area has a population of about 900,000. Manufacturing is a major driver of the local economy and that really took off, uh, picked up steam in the 1980s when a Ford Motor Company factory opened. It is like Phoenix in the Sonoran Desert and has a hot and dry climate. Uh, It's also fairly close to some beautiful beaches, which I know Jason and Yulia were able to enjoy uh, on their trip down there. Uh, So with that, I guess I'd like to hear from you guys about what your experience was living in Hermosillo. You both have had such interesting lives and lived in so many different cities and so many different countries. So I'd really just like to hear uh, what was it like living in Hermosillo? How did it compare to other places that you lived?
1: Uh, The food's definitely spicier. Uh, That's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, Yeah, everything that gets put on your table starts out at like a four out of five on the American restaurant scale But it's usually very good. That was like the first thing that struck because of course I was starving when I first arrived there But uh, it was a constant theme Um, Yeah, there's there's more interesting stuff
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, food is probably the most uh, vivid part of the experience it's it was great but i uh, i had to learn from my mistakes a few times ordering wrong things in the <laughs> restaurant <laughs> not paying enough attention because one syllable in the word can pretty much change the uh, yeah. taste of the dish So is there, is there a
0: story behind this It sounds yeah like a yeah.
2: Story <laughs> <cut him> on. <laughs> yeah once we uh went to some seafood place and i ordered uh uh Octopus Tacos, which was, uh, and it said, taco de pulpo enchilado, and enchilada is a dish. Yeah, right. Uh, So I thought it's going to be something like enchilada with uh, octopus, but it turned out that it was enchilado tacos, which means very spicy tacos, (laughs) so basically, I just took one bite and cried. Yeah, it's
1: like chiliated taco, (laughs) or like chiliated octopus is basically what it would translate to. (laughs) Enchilado is very different, uh, so useful tip for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, otherwise, though, I mean, Hermosillo is really similar to Phoenix, especially in terms of the climate. It's, um, so, I mean, we've been living in Phoenix uh, for the last several years, and um, so Hermosillo is still situated in the Sonoran Desert, just um, southwest of uh, Phoenix, or at least south, I guess I don't know how west it is, but south of Phoenix probably by um, five and a half hours, six hours, something like that, driving. Um, so it's a little closer to the ocean, but you don't really get any of the humidity from it. Um, I would say on average it's just like a couple of degrees colder, not really a noticeable difference. Um, so there are a lot of really obvious like similarities in terms of the climate, uh, which you know means the summer is, is pretty brutal there, uh, but we're kind of used to it here in Phoenix. Um, and then I, I mean the, the other really striking thing just about the, the city in general is like it was there were a lot of trees. I really kind of expected it to be, a little more um not barren necessarily but not have the sort of tree cover that they did uh like just a really green city uh, all things told um which was really impressive
0: and they have more trees than the phoenix
1: no i think they i i talked with the urban forester um Gosh, I've already forgotten his name. Uh, and I think they're right around the same uh, canopy cover as we are here in Phoenix. I think they have less overall like green space in terms of parks, um, but in terms of the amount of like canopy cover, um, about the same. And they have a, uh, a pretty different mix of trees, too. A lot more broadleaf trees, which really? I thought was um, fairly interesting. Uh, but then a lot of stuff that I'm now seeing uh, more of here in Phoenix that I think they're, they're importing either from Hermosillo uh, or... I, I couldn't tell you necessarily the the history of it, but yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, really green city, all things told. Yeah.
2: Well, I think one huge difference is that there is no grass. So overall, yes. their percentage of green coverage is much lower because there is no grass.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, really important for heat, Is grass does a great job of cooling you down with that evapotranspiration problem, yeah. so.
2: Right, but they have bigger issues with water than we do here, mm. so
1: yeah yeah no grass and um also like very little yard space especially in like the front of buildings to even install like a grass or kind of a garden feature um which is kind of unfortunate just for the aesthetic of like walking around but like there's so many shops there uh and it kind of like works with the actual lifestyle a lot better where it's like yeah it would be nice to have like more plants and stuff like covering but also like and i don't know just it you walk around and there's just a million shops to like walk into or small independently owned restaurants and things like that. And I think a lot of the grass cover in Phoenix is kind of associated with like these large strip mall complexes that just don't exist. So it's kind of a an interesting trade off, I guess. Yeah.
0: Uh, so you mentioned yard space that made me think of, I guess, um in terms of the living situation of most people in RSCU, is there a lot of single family housing units or is it uh, larger ap- apartment complexes like going straight up into the sky, the like skyscraper sort of things? Or um, did you get, get a feel for that while you were there? Uh,
1: I would say the, the newer complexes reminded me a lot of kind of the, the sprawl in, in Phoenix or like the infill um, in between, you know, like where all the farming land is leaving in Phoenix and then like you're building these. Um, kind of gated complexes with like individual housing units. Um, that was really similar to, to Phoenix in some ways. I think uh, the gated community, like these little tiny um, micro-suburbs uh, that are just kind of like not fully, I mean there's not like, you can't buy everything within them, but like there'll be a suburb and then like a couple of shops, like maybe a laundry place, maybe an, um, an OXO, which is a, just a drugstore there. Um, And then maybe a couple like small restaurants and stuff. So you do need to leave but they try to like be relatively self-contained for like short trips Um, So, yeah,
2: I think overall we were lucky to live in the city center and that was like more Historical area with older buildings more like single uh, uh, Owner housing and uh, it was pretty walkable and uh, like really nice neighborhood, but I think majority of the population like live in places that look very different from yeah where yeah, from the city center, yeah, oh. the
1: city center. Yeah. yeah, and it's probably worth talking about the place where we lived because it's', it's uh, relatively unique, um so again, we were right next to the city center, and I'm sure I'm messing with the details a bit on this, so Julia feel feel free to correct me
2: <laughs> it was complicated, <clears throat> <sorry. laughs>
1: but we stayed in the the second floor of this um house that was constructed basically by a cattle baron sometime in like the 1940s or something who then so like just the sprawling kind of like I mean I say sprawling it was a very large house um but coming from the midwest I've seen like mcmansions that are definitely bigger than that (laughs) um but I mean like very large house especially for the time um large yard space uh and then like um I guess the guy lived there for I don't know maybe less than 16 years or something before he died and then it got passed on to Opus Dei which is this um extremely wealthy sect of the Catholic Church so it became a place where uh, a lot of priests and monks uh, lived for a while and then after that I think there was some kind of lag period and then it eventually got handed off to a couple of young um, architects and interior designers who converted this large space into what is now like what two cafes they're adding a bar currently
2: yes there are stores yoga studio massage like everything you want in one place they want to do like a CrossFit yeah, yeah, they're no? adding
1: CrossFit. So it's this, like... <laughs> this, <laughs> yeah, this weird, like, legacy building that instead of tearing down, they were just like, well, there is a lot of space here. And it is a city full of, like, small shops anyway. So they just kind of, like, kept the, the outside space and turned it into, like, this outdoor seating cafe space. And so there's, you know a lot of variance I guess in terms of how like people are living in the in the city like they're trying to revitalize this downtown area and getting creative uh, in that kind of way that they were with our uh, location but definitely not the norm but um, there's kind of interesting like urban revitalization that's trying to um, uh, work through but then there's also just the the normal sprawl of like well there are a lot of people in the city's growing and it's the capital of Sonora so they're trying to balance that in the same way that Phoenix has these problems too.
0: So uh we've alluded a, a little bit to some of the uh extreme events that uh, ceo is dealing with uh in terms of heat and drought but I was hoping uh just to hear a little bit more about the sort of state the types of extreme events that they're dealing with um and some challenges that the city's facing in order to address uh, these issues.
2: Uh heat is a major challenge similarly to Phoenix and I think even this year or last year, Hermosillo, there was like, a, there was a day when Hermosillo was the hottest city in the world. Yeah,
1: we had two days two when days, we were there that it was yeah. the hottest city in the world. Wow. Yeah. And it wasn't even the hottest day for Hermosillo in their own historical record on that day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like 118, I think, something like yeah, that. It's pretty hot. So in it's... early June, something like that. Yeah, yeah. so it's pretty brutal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> in terms of how they deal with it, I think they face a lot of challenges, uh, like uh, in allocating resources for green infrastructure. There are a number of projects that uh, that they are currently working on, but they're mostly, I'd say, <clears throat> mostly directed towards the downtown. And uh, I know they also want to build one uh, big park uh, on the south of the city. Do you? Repeat? Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. I couldn't say much more than that. Yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, but overall, heat is still pretty big challenge, and uh, since I'm dealing with public transit and more people use public transit in, uh, in our than, than in Phoenix, it, it seems like a larger ratio.
0: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, that they have more issues with uh, water resources uh, than, than we do here, and that might be part of the reason why they don't have so much grass. Uh, do either of you know much about uh, their sort of water resource management strategies, or
1: um, I they're they're relatively similar in terms of, or relatively similar to Phoenix, I guess in terms of some of the solutions that they pursued. I mean, there's you know they they trapped uh, the Sonoran River, um, which used to flow freely through the city, and they constructed a dam. I forget when it was finished. I think it was the early two thousands. Um, so they trapped the water source basically just to the east of the city. Um, it's you know viewable from if you're high enough uh, and can look over the mountain range, um, but that source. Uh, is just one river really um, and it dries up over the course of the summer mm. and it's it's it gets dry enough in there where I mean there's plants that I wouldn't even consider like wetland adapted plants and like portions of it that'll start growing in mm. uh, so it stays dry for a while um, and then so they also do a lot of uh, well water um, which is what the same strategy that Phoenix is now pursuing uh, given its own water shortage issues um, So, yeah, it's not really that different. They just have fewer um, potential sources to to choose from, basically. Um, Whereas, what we have like three different rivers that we pull from here in in Phoenix, but they just have the one.
0: Yeah. And uh, so, it's a very dry place, uh, as as we've already mentioned, um, but they get most of their rain between uh, July and September, sort of like uh, what we've experienced here in Phoenix too, so do they have any issues with flooding during that time?
1: Oh yeah, uh, so they have the, okay, so I guess in terms of the, uh, the weather situation or the climate, um, yeah, so they, they get most of their rains um, during that monsoon season. Uh, we're, um, so okay, again, the Hermosillo is uh, basically west of the Sea of Cortez, and the Sea of Cortez also stretches to the, the south of them as well. Um, So during the the summer season, for those of you who don't live in Phoenix, uh, we get these huge monsoons that blow up from the Sea of Cortez. Um, But those monsoons basically get weaker the farther inland they go, so Hermosillo gets um, a more intense monsoon season um, than we do here in Phoenix, although they do not get the the massive dust storms that we do. Mm. Um, They do get some winter rains as well, uh, but yeah, the the vast majority, I forget, maybe 70% happens during the summer monsoon. Hermosillo also has a similar drainage system as Phoenix does, where um, historically there hasn't been as much of a focus on dealing with these like um, what we would call pluvial uh, sources of flooding, which is just extreme rainfall um, that uh, doesn't um, get absorbed by the landscape or by people's yards or whatever, but instead hits the pavement and then just like moves through the streets and causes flooding that way. And so could we just, uh, could yes. we, uh, just
0: touch, you said pluvial flooding, so could compare that to other forms of flooding? There's fluvial, coastal, yeah. so how is it differentiated from this?
1: Yeah, uh, good point. So uh, pluvial flooding, once again, is rainfall flooding or just flooding that it um, occurs uh, due to rain um, coming into contact with um, surfaces that don't absorb that water, and instead that water moves overlands, you know, over sidewalks, over streets, um, and basically kind of collects uh, that way. Um, Riverine flooding is uh, one of the more common ones that cities are concerned with, which is basically just where um, you have enough rain, or it is also essentially caused by rainfall, um, but it is rain that enters the river system, and then um, the flooding that occurs is basically when the river swells uh, beyond its capacity and, like, um, comes over the banks of the river and then floods outwards into um, the floodplain. And because most cities are actually constructed in riverine floodplains, this is um, a major uh, cause for concern and is like the, the majority of the, the flooding that you deal with um, in cities that are not on the coast. Um, and then coastal cities, uh, of course, have this, um, you know, storm surges or events that kind of push uh, the ocean uh into the city basically um, it can move up rivers and cause uh flooding you know from the river system as well um but in general like uh, um, coastal flooding is just like storm surges and hurricanes and you know major tides like king tides um causing the waters to swallow movement words um, yeah um so yeah they have the same sort of drainage system that we do in phoenix um except uh, I don't know that this exists in Phoenix, but they have actually designated some of the streets in the city as canals um, explicitly. So these are streets where people live and drive and have yeah. to do all of their normal errands that just during parts of the year um, are designed to flood. Um, and I think the highest that I had people tell me was like a meter and a half of water wow. um, that this is designed to ferry. Uh, uh, under a relatively short period of time. So it's an extreme amount of water, but like is gone within a couple of hours um, in some cases, and then in other cases, like 30 minutes is what people were reporting. So relatively flashy high waters in portions of the city. Um, and then of course there's flooding in areas that aren't designated to be these canals as well. Um, so a lot of disruption of foot traffic, especially in a city like Hermosillo, which is kind of designed to be walked around. Um, and then also uh, problems with um, driving and things like that. But then the streets flood and then the water moves out from the streets similar to rivers and then floods right. like the neighboring businesses. Right, right, right. Um, so there's, there's a lot of uh, major flooding problems in the city. I would say it's probably more sensitive than Phoenix to a similar rainfall event. I would say there's more flooding that happens in Hermosillo.
0: And maybe that has to do with the overall amount of green area that Amaroseo has versus what Phoenix has. It's definitely not helping. <laughs> yeah, definitely more, could use some
1: infiltration. Yeah,
0: more opportunities for infiltration here. In yes. Yeah. All right, great. Thank you. That was great. Uh, so, Yulia, uh, so recently you and I talked uh, in a recent episode about your research focusing on how people in Phoenix experience heat at bus stops. And in that conversation, you mentioned that you were going to go to Amaroseo to do some comparisons uh, about the same sort of thing. So is that what you wound up doing down there? Yep.
2: Sure, and uh, my research kind of got expanded in Hermosillo, so uh, in Phoenix I looked on mostly the uh, riders' perspective and how riders perceive heated bus stops. so I did the same in Hermosillo, but uh, we expanded our uh, sample of the stops and we looked at stops across the whole city from north to south, and uh, there were stops with different kinds of infrastructure with uh, trees and without trees but also there were some newer design like design stops designer stops in a way uh, that were installed in downtown phoenix and uh <clears throat> that like very uh are very different from the standard ones so we looked at those two but then uh at the same time we also kind of look at the more top-down um perceptions of the public transit system and interviewed uh, stakeholders uh, of the public transit system from the state, from the city, uh, director of the bus company and also bus drivers. So I was trying to get like a more uh, holistic picture of public transit system uh, in Hermosillo. And um, I guess I need to mention that I think the first or second week since we arrived there, there was a major change in the system. And um, there used to be like two or three companies that were operating buses, but now they, they withdrew the concessions and gave them to new company. And there was a major strike. And uh, right now system is in a process of change. There is shortage of, shortage of drivers, shortage of uh, buses, but they're trying to upgrade and improve the system. So we'll see how it goes. So it was an interesting time.
0: Could you uh, give us a little bit more information about the state of public transportation in Hermosillo? So you mentioned there's a new company Mm -hmm. taking charge of some of the buses in the city, but could you tell us a little bit about like how spread out are bus stops, how long are waits typically for the bus, do a lot of people use the bus, that sort of stuff?
2: Yeah, uh, much more people use buses in Hermosillo Comparing to Phoenix, so in Hermosia uh, uh, ridership is at 40%, 40% and wow. here in Phoenix is like 3% of total commute, so big differences. I think uh, there it's uh, 312,600 uh, uh, users is a typical demand per day, wow. so it's a lot. Typical waiting time is also higher, uh, is is higher in Hermosillo than than in Phoenix. So it's on average uh, around 17, 18 minutes. Oh,
0: wow.
2: Yep, and uh, there is no predefined schedule. You can, uh, there is an app where you can track the bus, but there is, they don't come on schedule. Is the app accurate? Uh, I've heard different things okay. about it. I think some drivers do not want to have their tracking device on their bus. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I'm i not sure I cannot confirm how accurate it is. And the total travel time is also much longer. So, uh, it's uh, between 30 and 60 minutes for 40, about 40% of their, of their riders. So, it's quite long. Considering that... Uh, Half of the buses do not have an AC. This is also a big uh, uh, issue on and uh, <coughs> potentially health problem and thermal comfort problem. So, right now there is a, I think there are about 300 something buses in operation, and uh, if I remember correctly, there were 13 new buses when I started this. Uh, there were some some. Uh, so there are the system is represented by old buses, sort of mid-age buses, and then new buses, and old buses do not have AC, and then middle-age buses, some of them have AC, and some of them do not, and then the new buses uh, have AC. So there is a big mixture, and uh, I think there were definitely less buses with AC than uh, than without as we came but they are trying to change that and uh, upgrading and buying new buses and uh, i've heard that since we came and started the campaign we also installed sensors inside the buses to measure temperatures so we picked a sample of 12 buses with and without AC, and of different buses of different ages, and installed temperature sensors. So we would go every other, every week, we would go at night to the bus depot around like 10 p.m. and stay there (laughs) until midnight, and uh, download data from from the buses, because that's when buses are returning back to the bus depot. Uh, so I've heard that since we've started the campaign, the company purchased uh, about 150, 170 more new buses. Oh, wow, great. I think uh, it helped uh, kind of, uh, we did not disclose any data because it's still in the process, but you know, they were able to see when we download the data, but generally just talking to people and uh, about our research and that we install installing sensors, I think it kind of built the momentum and uh, made them, you know, to speed up their procurement for new buses, actually. Awesome.
0: That's that's, that's really great news. Uh, talking about um, some didn't have AC, some did have AC, it made me think about uh, whether the buses with AC uh, have their routes in particular areas. Like, do you know whether, the buses with AC and without AC travel mm-hmm. the same places, or the n- like the newer buses in like nicer parts of the city versus older buses in like more uh, like impoverished parts of the city, or sort of equal travel. I should say.
2: Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I I'm not sure about that. I think uh, they put new buses on uh, higher demand routes. Oh, Th- that's yeah. That that's what my feeling is.
0: Uh, okay, so you mentioned uh, you're still sort of working with David. Do you have any sort of preliminary findings that you can share with us or just hunches yeah. that
2: you have? Yeah, like uh, maximum temperature in buses without AC goes up to 50 degrees Celsius. Oh, my
0: okay. So, and what is that for uh, in Fahrenheit? For, this is oh, like,
2: like above 120, like.
0: <laughs> Halfway to boiling. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's, again, for potentially a 30 to 60 minute yeah yeah on. after yeah. waiting twenty minutes after we waiting we'll wait- <laughs> like yeah.
2: Like- yeah so I think maximums in buses we they see go up to thirty six degrees Celsius, which is uh around wait, up to ninety yeah. around yeah, ninety degrees one. Fahrenheit uh, and then there are like the differences in the mean temperature, so in buses we they see it's twenty four degrees Celsius. Yeah. And in buses without AC, it's like 30. No, I think in buses, in buses uh, with the AC, the mean temperature is 27 degrees Celsius. And in buses, buses without AC, it's about 36 degrees or 34 degrees. So there is almost 10 degree difference. Yeah,
0: that's, that's pretty stark.
2: Yeah. And uh, you know, from my interviews with like the stakeholders, they don't seem to perceive it as such a big problem. They're like, "Oh, people are used to it," you know. <laughs> and also drivers. We were talking to drivers and asking, like, "Are there any accidents? Like, do people feel bad inside the buses?" And they were like, "No, everything is fine." Well, children sometimes throw up in the bus, <laughs> and they will just put them near the window, and oh. you know, they just deal with it. <laughs>
0: you know, children are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, mild heat stroke, yeah. but nothing worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's so good. Yeah, well, that's, that's yeah. A pretty interesting cultural difference there, that sort of thing were happening in MD. Yeah. Uh...
2: yeah, I think people have, like, um, other issues to... To be concerned of, yeah. it's like is bus coming at all? They yeah. seem to be more yeah. concerned about the bus frequencies and that the bus may not stop if it's full. The, it's basically yeah. up to the driver to de- decide whether he is going to stop or not stop. Uh-huh. So if you are like at the bus for like twenty minutes and the bus doesn't even stop, that, that's a bigger issue. <laughs> that is a big issue.
0: Yeah. And I do you know how frequent the buses? How frequently the buses are full?
2: Well, I uh, from. From the report I've read that uh, was uh, prepared for the city before they started upgrading the system is that they don't really, uh, that uh, supply does not meet the demand. And uh, that, that's why during the, the peak hours, you know, uh, like mornings or evenings, buses get full and um, people, they, then they don't stop. Then people cannot get to work and uh, they even organize into groups and get a taxi. This this has became uh, like another issue in the recent years because the public transit system is was so inefficient. Uh, taxis started just to come to the bus stop and pick up people. So people like four or five people would come together and huh. get it up. Uh,
0: anything else about uh, what you did down there that you want to mention
2: right now? Well, I think general from my general observations, uh, people seem to be more to have more adaptive capacity to heat so i've seen um, i've seen uh, uh, mobile carts with refreshments uh, come into the bus stops and selling drinks i think yeah. it's a great idea yeah. i've seen vendors come into bus stops selling different small things like candies and cigarettes bringing their own shade and uh, <laughs> to uh-huh. the bus stop so people get really inventive and uh, seem to have you know just deal with with, with the heat and not expecting uh, a lot of action from the government, just being more proactive.
0: So uh, you mentioned a term a moment ago, adaptive capacity, that I think we've talked about in this show previously, but could you just briefly sort of explain what you mean by that? You sort of explained by a context, but could you just elaborate? Uh,
2: sure. So, yeah, in this case, by adaptive capacity, uh, I mean that people... Uh, whether they have resources or not, they're able to adapt to heat in a better way. So it's possible that they have fewer resources than people have here, but they're able to use them in a different way and uh, be more creative with how they adapt to heat.
0: Gotcha. Cool, all right, we'll move on to Jason then. Uh, So Jason, could you give us just a short description of your general research interests?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So I think I've um, most broadly been concerned about uh, vulnerability in cities. Um, So vulnerability, I guess, kind of broadly refers to um, how affected people are by a given extreme weather event. Um, And in particular, I focus on flooding. So just to kind of break it down, you have, um, basically, if you have an event, like an extreme flooding event in a city, uh, the first thing you have to do to, in order to be affected by a flooding event is to actually be exposed to it. Right. Um, so, you know, you're, you have flood water that's entering your house or that is um, interrupting your commute or something like that. And then uh, in addition to that, you have to have um, sensitivity um, and sort of adaptive capacity to it. So sensitivity would kind of refer to like, well, how deeply am I damaged by um, this sort of flooding event? Like if my house gets damaged, do I have the economic resources to actually pay for a repair uh, of this, am I gonna be um, going bankrupt because uh, I've lost like the major economic asset that I have with this house or um, things like that. And then adaptive capacity, we kind of talked about, um, would kind of be like, well, how, um, how can I make myself less sensitive or less vulnerable for the next storm event? So maybe I can go purchase sandbags and put that up or do something to, Uh, modify my house or my commute or something to to reduce my exposure or sensitivity to uh, this sort of flooding event. Um, So yeah, I study how social vulnerability is different across different populations in cities, and then also um, I really focus on how um, flooding, especially pluvial flooding, so that surface, extreme rainfall flooding, um, occurs in cities, and I try to model Um, areas that are particularly exposed to them and then figure out ways that we can uh, make cities less um, exposed or less uh, sensitive to these sort of flooding events. Um, The majority of my research from a previous episode that we did um, is in Valdivia, Chile, where I study how um, the city's network of urban wetlands um, is basically providing um, flood protection or um, storage for floodwaters in the city and how um, altering these wetlands Um, will increase or decrease the overall effectiveness or ability um, of the entire drainage network, which is connected to these wetlands, um, to deal with floods uh, both now and in the future.
0: Perfect, so uh, I think that sort of leads into then, what was your overall research question for MOCU?
1: Uh, yeah, so my research in Hermosillo was, um, parts of it were, were just kind of very technical. Like we have this new model for um, flooding that myself and a couple of other researchers constructed called a blue spot model, um, which basically uh, is a very simple model that just takes um, information about the, uh, the topography or like the elevation of the land in a given city, Um, And then you input a precipitation amount, so you look at like an extreme storm event and say like, okay, over the course of the storm event, we expect to see like eight inches of rain by the end of it. And then the model outputs basically all the areas, excuse me, in the city that um, uh, will be filled to the brim, basically with that flood water, if you assume very minimal amounts of like uh, absorption by the, the terrain of that sort of water system. So I had done this, uh, I used this model for the city um, for a scenarios workshop that we did which is where we bring in these practitioners and um, local groups and talk to them about uh, the risks that they have for extreme weather events um, and how to plan a more resilient city in the future. Um, So I basically gave them the results from this model as kind of a talking or jumping off point to talk about how to make the city more flood resilient in the future just as a a way to kind of demonstrate, like, these are potentially exposed areas um, to flooding in the future um, that we should maybe be thinking about, and these are the areas of the cities that are more at risk than others, blah blah blah. Um, So the the work that I was doing down there was mostly like actually verifying the results of this model. Mm -hmm. It's very new, I think it only really was published about in 2018 by uh, Thomas uh, Baustrom, who's a researcher in Copenhagen, Denmark. So shout out to uh, Ballstrom. <laughs> Um
0: We have lots of listeners. <laughs> right,
1: yeah. Uh, so, he, uh, so anyway, this is a relatively new model. It hasn't really been verified in really anywhere except for Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and so this was a part of my research is actually just going down and doing um, what we would call participatory mapping exercises where I just go out and talk to people and have them draw on a map basically the areas where... Uh, They've experienced flooding in the neighborhood Um, and then to collect information about that flooding such as depth um, How long it lasts and then the types of damages that uh, it causes um, in their life or in their lives? Um, And just try to figure out like how accurate this model um, Actually is at number one predicting locations But then like what can it potentially tell us about the kinds of experiences that we have? um, if we have flooding on these types of land covers or or whatever. And then I guess the other part of it was the city has a a model for flooding already, um, but it uses totally different inputs um, and has totally different sort of like mechanical considerations or the physics behind it are very different. So it ends up showing basically a different kind of flooding. And this is a very typical situation in all cities. Like every city has like some model that is in some way incomplete that they use to estimate the problem areas for flooding in the city. Um, which they use as a supplement to like 311 calls or um, basically emergency calls um, from people uh, on the ground who are reporting flooding. Um, So every city has this sort of like incomplete picture and the blue spot model potentially can um, provide a sort of supplement to whatever existing information they already have. And it's really easy to deploy, um, but again, it hasn't really been verified. So this was part of like, well, okay, what can the blue spot model actually tell us? How can it supplement the existing Um, sort of data sets and estimations for flood risk that we already have.
0: Great. So, and and for your research, you went and conducted uh, interviews with people around the city to ask them about uh, where and how they experienced uh, flooding. So how did you go about selecting uh, people that you interviewed? Uh,
1: Yeah, so I picked out um, six neighborhoods in the city overall. uh, And uh, basically, you know, using a, a geographic information program, I just drew circles of like one kilometer around um, a single point in a neighborhood and then uh, walked around on the ground from door to door and um, tried to interview enough people to kind of get what I would call saturation of um, zones and basically just like go around until no one is really identifying new points of flooding that I haven't already heard about from, Mm -hmm. from other people. Um, or just until it got too hot and then I left. Um, but yeah, so I ended up talking to a lot of businesses. I think I originally conceived of this as me talking to households, but um, it gets really complicated to do that uh, in a city like Hermosillo, but it would be difficult in Phoenix too, and I'm sure many other cities across the United States because there are a lot of gated communities that don't want to let uh, yeah. some random person come in and harass their uh, residents about like answering a survey and who knows if my credentials are actually true or whatever so it just ended up being a huge hassle but uh people in businesses are standing around all day and many of them probably actually close to like 90 percent of the people i talked to were totally willing to do this mapping exercise and oh, survey right. um so most of the people i ended up talking to were like small businesses although i talked to a couple of employees of larger businesses too
0: and did you did, did pretty so a lot of them were enthusiastic about participating did any of them have any like particularly uh, memorable stories about experiencing a flood that
1: you can remember? Uh, I'm trying to think of any really good ones. I mean, I think the, the biggest uh, takeaway I had from people's experiences were, like, I mean, I would go in the neighborhoods that, like, neither of the models actually really identified as being mm-hmm. particularly flooded because I was also trying to figure out, like, well, where are the shortcomings um, for both of these models and, you know, like, find a news story about this one, like, hospital flooding or something like that. And then I would go to those areas and just, like, talk to people about the locations and try to figure out what's the source of this flooding. And just, like, people deal with flooding um, very commonly there. I mean, like, people's businesses, just water will enter the business, like, a couple centimeters deep several times a year. And so they just, you know, elevate all of their stuff slightly off the floor. So when you go talk with them... You'll get answers like, "No, I don't really think flooding's a problem here, but I do get several centimeters of flooding <laughs> every time it rains, because they're so well adapted, like just on the, the ex- experiential level that they don't even register it like as a problem anymore. Um, there was one guy who so I talked about the street canals, um, where they divert large amounts of water um, into these very small areas.. Um, uh, especially along streets, before it like basically goes underground into the the limited drainage system that they have. Um, and so, old guy sitting on a porch. I walked up, um, asked him if he'd participate. Uh, he said, "Sure." And um, I asked him if flooding was a problem in the neighborhood. He said, "Not really." Um, but I was like, "Well, there is this drainage outlet here, and this is a street canal. Does this actually, you know, fill?" And he was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "How deep does it go?" It's like meter and a half ish, and then like pointed to the mark on the side of his house where the water like would go and i was like you know this isn't a problem and he's like well we put up this structure and it keeps the water out i'm like well there you go um so it's just interesting like when people have to deal with this for so long you have to really be careful with like how you phrase these questions because very frequently they will experience flooding um but they won't necessarily even think to call it in or whatever because they're just like yeah, this is just my life. I've been here for you know years, and this is a design sort of thing. But is it a problem? I don't, you know, it's just a, a sort of weird sort of interaction between like being used to it, and potentially there's um, questions about like their faith in the government being able to do stuff about it, where they're just like, no, it's not really a problem. I deal with it. Um, yeah, so those those stories were like pretty common. Um, I was really surprised at how many businesses I went to where they were just like, yeah, water enters every single time it rains. Um, hmm.
0: So in this case, it seems like going back to some of the terms you were using earlier, they they, ha- they all have like a high experience of flooding, but yeah. maybe a low sensitivity to it?
1: Yeah, I I would say so. I think there's areas that definitely have just been flooding for a long period of time where they're just kind of used to it. But, and I mean, this is uh, this gets to a good point about how cities develop, where um, so like as you are building outwards in cities and you're installing more of this impervious like surfaces so um, pavements, rooftops, sidewalks, um, things like that that don't actually absorb rainwater you will create situations where there's potentially more flood water because um, none of that water is infiltrating and that water basically routes along the streets and sidewalks and things like that so there are some neighborhoods that I would go to and they hadn't experienced flooding except in like the last five years and they would be like it's because that development up the street or whatever, it didn't um, properly consider, I'm using the technical terms here, obviously, you know, it didn't properly consider the, uh, you know, basically, um, what was gonna happen to all the water, basically, that uh, was pooling on top, and it just gets, uh, you know, routed down to our neighborhood, and now flooding's been a problem when it hasn't ever been in the past. So it's not like the storms have changed, it's just patterns of development, and then there wasn't a full consideration of um, how to divert this water.
0: Yeah, uh, so, do you have any preliminary findings that you can uh, share with us here?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think overall, I would say the blue spot model for like how like quick and easily deployed it is. Um, I think it, it did a pretty good job uh, of actually predicting um, areas and cities that um, are at risk for flooding. It definitely identified a lot of neighborhoods uh, that experienced flooding that weren't shown by the existing model that the city already used. Um, it's a, so, you know, which kind of demonstrates that it's a potentially useful supplement. Um, there were plenty of blue spots in the model, or like these areas that the model estimated as being problem areas for flooding that people didn't really report on. I would say we probably, in a given neighborhood, 20 to 30% of, you know, of um, areas that were reported to flood would also include like a blue spot or something like that. So not like a great. Yeah. um sort of estimation ability, but it is a potentially useful supplement that gives you an idea of some areas of your city that flood that um, wouldn't be shown in, in these other models um, but I mean beyond that I, a lot of the work I did was qualitative um, and just trying to document some of these experiences that, uh, that people had and uh, it's potentially going to be useful for Uh, flood reporting or like rapid reporting of flooding in cities, because if we can create these sort of like broad categories for types of damages that people experience, like water entering home, water entering business, um, you know, can't drive a neighborhood, can't cross streets walking and things like that. And you can um, have that very quickly reportable by just checking basically a radio box or whatever um, in a reporting application, then the city, if uh, can collect way more information both about the types of flooding and the locations and things like that. Um, so there's potentially some some useful stuff that came out of it um, and then just in general, I think it's a good lesson for for modelers like to actually go out and talk to people because number yeah. one, you're missing a lot of locations, but number two, you're really missing out on like what flooding is for like flooding is an experience it's not just an observation from right. like a model it's like this sort of embodied experience of like, yeah, I was stuck at work for six hours or something, and none of us had eaten, you know, yeah. like during that period, so we were all like starving and just hoping that this flood would pass and things like that. And so I think you kind of lose the the sort of human elements um, and the uh, the the rich experiences that people have like with flooding that um, is critical, both for thinking about it, but also for conceptualizing what the problem even is when we talk about flooding.
0: I I think that's such an important point that so many uh, scientists need to remember is trying to bring in the human element to really have that connection to reality and people's experiences. Yeah,
1: and I mean, just the way we kind of like work, the the more remote work that we can do, the better, because it's easier (laughs) to do, frankly, especially when you're in a city when it's like, you know, over 110 degrees outside and you're trying to collect this information, but like you really miss out on so much. Um, that is potentially critical to to thinking about your work, so, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Okay, so we're wrapping up now, which means it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is asking uh, people to share haikus about their research. Um, Would one of you like to go first?
1: Uh, Yuli? (laughs) That's the pro move. You speak up to volunteer someone else.
2: (laughs) this game <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll go. Sun burns my feet. Where can I find a relief? I will dream of shade.
0: I, the, the, the haiku you shared with us last time was so great. That was also just very beautiful and artistic, and I don't think Jason will be able to
1: that, <laughs> so, uh. Well, I'll cop to that right now, because nah. I only wrote two out of three lines last <laughs> time. I went to sleep not being able to think of a third one, so here's two-thirds of a haiku. Uh, high heat greets the wind. The gulf reforms in the sky. And then some third line about people. Oh, uh, were
0: shaping up to be it was going well. Yeah. I
2: know. I'll, really poetic.
1: I'll finish it. We'll put it in the episode description. <laughs> or leave it incomplete for the, the listener to do on their own. <laughs> That's
0: right. Choose your own adventure haiku. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you again uh, so much for, for joining me today. It's a really fun conversation. Uh, I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did too. Uh, and thank you listeners for uh, joining us. And uh, we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you.
0: The Future Cities podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about Eurex, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.